Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute. Our response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. So how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how the professionals in those industries are contributing towards our collective efforts to reach net zero and a more sustainable and prosperous future. Welcome to Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, the RTPI and Content with Purpose podcast exploring the vital role that planners can play in tackling climate change, paving the way to a sustainable, viable and vibrant future. Now we know that climate change is the big issue for us all and it requires real strategic thinking around how we transition from a society that gets the vast majority of its energy from fossil fuels to one that is carbon net zero in less than 30 years. It's a mind-boggling undertaking, especially when you consider that some 40% of global CO2 emissions come from the built environment. So we need a plan, right? And if you need a plan, you need planners, right? So planners, by definition, must be part of the solution. But there are so many pressures already on planners, not least from government demanding that hundreds of thousands of new homes are built every year across the UK. Is there any capacity in the system, with planners already working flat out, to take on board the enormous weight of responsibility that comes with trying to save the planet as well? Well, to answer some of these toughest and most interesting questions around the role of planning in tackling the climate emergency, we've called in the big guns. We have Sue Bridge, who is the president of the RTPI, and Joanna Averley, who is the government's chief planner for England. Um, thank you both for being with us today. Sue, perhaps if I could turn to you first. And, and just to be clear, you are a practising planner yourself. You've been involved on the public side and on the private side, and you're in the middle of big projects yourself actually at the moment. Yes, I am. Big residential projects, yes. So you know what you're talking about. You're fully up to speed (laughs) on it all. Give us an idea then what you think the major roadblocks are to planning taking up this mantle of being key in fighting climate change. Thanks, Rob. I've thought about this a lot, particularly over the last 18 months or so, as as issues clarify within particularly my field, the residential sector, but also within the commercial sector as well. And there are some big blockers to making progress on this. Um, At national and local level, we have um, a lack of effective leadership. And that comes about primarily because there is poor integration of public policy. We have um, too many different policies and initiatives which are not joined up. For example, if I can use um, an example here, we've got the local nature recovery strategies. Local plans produced by the local planning authorities have to have regard to those local nature recovery strategies, but the local nature recovery strategies do not have to have regard to the local plan. So that disconnect is throughout the system. 
There is also a lack of funding and resources to invest in effective spatial planning. And actually, you've uh, touched on that in your introduction. We're also looking at significant barriers between aligning planning, spatial planning on one hand and transport planning on the other. Significant amount of our carbon emissions come from transport and there are barriers to achieving good modal shift that is translating um, from car to other more environmentally friendly uh, modes of transport. The cost of public transport, the lack of EV and uh, electric vehicle charging infrastructure, um, the um, lack of encouragement for car shares, car clubs, etc. And at the end of the day, we have to significantly change our mindset so that we're designing places for people and not for cars and bin lorries, which essentially is what we do at the moment within right. residential areas. So there's there's a lot of, I was going to say roadblocks in the way, some literal roadblocks in their way there literal as well. Literal roadblocks, yes, there are. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring Joanna into it now. Joanna Averley, you're the, the chief planner for, for England, right in the heart of government. Presumably you're talking with ministers and the Secretary of State on a regular basis. Um, I mean, what do you make of what Susan's just said there? Uh, thanks so much, Robin. It's great to be joining you today. I think I just want to reflect on, I suppose, the strategic policy context within which we are asked to operate as planners and as everybody who's who's involved in changing both our built environment, our towns, cities, our villages, our, our own homes, um, but also the natural environment, um, which is a really strong and increasing emphasis for both policy, but then how that policy implements local decisions and local local plans and what developers do, what what, what we all do as householders as well. Um, and it is a long time ago, but, you know, the Brundtland principles of sustainable development and the fact how we change how we live, how we change our built and our natural environment, and that we do that in light of the impacts we're having on the planet and whether we are actually restraining the ability of future generations to enjoy the things that we've enjoyed. That's been at the heart of planning and the planning process for some time and obviously developed into the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And then as it comes into policy for us in planning, uh, it's coming through the National Planning Policy Framework, which through it has got these important strands of sustainable development. The process of planning, both the preparation of local plans, you know, what goes where to what standard. Um, it very much a sustainable development at the heart of it. Um, and then more recently, we've done two, I think, um, a couple of really important things which are current in planning policy. Uh, one is the development of the National Design Guide and then also uh, the launch of the National um, Model Design Code. And for those who, many on the, who are listening into this, I'm sure will be uh, in the know in terms of planning. But what particularly the National Model Design Code does is say when you are thinking about a neighborhood and you're going to change it or you've got a major site what are the issues that should be at the forefront of your mind and how do you have a conversation with the community as to what's important and powerfully uh, that menu of issues has brought into play uh, very firmly things that are always being considered open space but also ecology and environment within uh, the urban environment uh, and then the use of resources uh, and also the lifespan of buildings. So all these sort of principles that come out of uh, uh, the, uh, how we both manage what we have now, how we change and adapt 
our buildings, but also how we do new things. Um, and I think I was just going to sort of say, just in context for this conversation, I think it's always really powerful to sort of sort of slightly pull apart what we mean by uh, climate change, because there are various different things that we do collectively, uh, which will either positively or, or less positively impact on creating and addressing some of these challenges. One is environmental enhancement. So as we all know, we have a fairly depleted ecology and biodiversity in the country. One is uh, about adaptation to, unfortunately, the locked in change that's coming towards us, um, whether that's temperature, heat, flood risk, things like that. And that has a has an impact for different places in different ways. Uh, the journey to net zero, so how we both produce energy, distribute it, and use it. Uh, and that affects the performance of our individual homes. I am, I'm currently sitting in a leaky Edwardian home, uh, but also I have I am reliant on, on uh, energy that comes not from renewable sources, although we try and buy renewable sources. Planning for tomorrow's environment. Produced by Content With Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute. This episode is sponsored by Rambol and the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Rambol is a global engineering, architecture and consultancy company, combining local insight and experience with a global knowledge base to create sustainable societies and drive positive change. The RSPB is the largest nature conservation charity in the UK, delivering successful conservation and working with partners to save nature and drive its recovery. You can learn more about their work on our digital series website, planningfortomorrow.rtpi.org.uk. Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute. We're going to dig into all of these different strands over the course of the conversation. I just want to sort of backtrack a little bit and, and uh, before we get into some of those individual topics. Um, there's a key element that that we really need to be mindful of is the is the fact that there is on the one hand creating the 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 structure of the plans in the first place how we should go about things and then the other side of the coin is the implementation and I know Sue you're deeply concerned about the state that planning is in uh, in terms of the number of people who are actually in planning and who can actually put all the new plans into operation going forward there's a real issue there isn't there that there is a real issue. I don't disagree with anything Joanna said, by the way, in her introduction there. And I think that um, just taking a, a slight step back, we have the commitment within the existing NPPF, the National Planning Policy Framework, and the government is currently consulting on some significant changes to that arising out of the levelling up and regeneration bill, which is currently going through the House of Lords. One of the um, things in the consultation paper, which has really um, got to me, I suppose, is that the government has actually said in writing, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, is that building a net zero carbon future and adapting to the impact of climate change are the core objectives of planning. And that, that is the introduction in um, paragraph one of chapter seven, if anybody wants to look it up. I think that is a really powerful statement and it should give us a really good basis on which to build. 
that document then goes on to put in six bullet points as to where planning is so important in terms of creating the environment, creating change, creating the right uh, attitudes towards adapting to climate change. And I think that for me is the important thing is actually doing what Joanna's just said there and looking at what do we mean by, by climate change, climate emergency, and actually what we need to do is to move towards this net zero um, by 2050. And how are we going to get there in incremental steps? Because it can't all be done at once. And that, I think, is where we're lacking, is we are actually lacking a clear roadmap as to how to get from where we are now in 2023 to where we need to be in 2023. 2050. Well, that's the old adage, isn't it? If you want to get somewhere and they say, well, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> this is where we're at, though, isn't it? And oh, no, going... but we've made huge strides mm -hmm. in, in getting to where we are in 2023. But from where we are in 2023 to actually achieving the end target of 2050 net zero, we've still got a long way to go. And that needs to be clearly mapped out. And I believe we need a national plan. OK, so, Joanna, you're right at the heart of government. You go in and you get the chance to see the Secretary of State. I mean, are you are you confident that at the very top level, government gets it? All the stuff that Susan's talking about there that needs to happen to allow planning to actually put all this stuff into action, that they get it at the top level politically, that there needs to be a kind of a shift in mindset. You need to have more planners. You need to have more support, those kind of things to actually make it happen. Let's just reflect on uh, three policy areas which are highly relevant to both climate adaptation, the journey to net zero, which is about energy production and use, um, uh, and the environment, which is the environment enhancement of our existing environment. And, and in, so let me just reflect on those in three different ways, because as Sue rightly says, this is a multi-dimensional uh, set of issues and challenges, and it needs a multi-dimensional set of responses, and it needs different bits of... Uh, local government, national government, the private sector and uh, providers and communities to be all sort of playing their part and acting in certain ways to sort of solve some of the issues. So just as three examples, which I think just elucidate sort of some of the things that are going on um, quite well. Uh, to get to net zero, we have to produce, uh, collect, you could say, uh, green energy. We have to in new ways. So whether that's onshore, offshore, wind, solar, etc. Um, and we have to then distribute that energy around the country and we have to get it into homes and into businesses. So that is about national, what's referred to as in the main, nationally strategic infrastructure projects. And there's a huge push that the department uh, uh, is leading on uh, in terms of how you, you get those projects defined and through the system much more quickly so that they're both permitted, but then they're actually happening on the ground. That's absolutely vital to us um, uh, basically greening our energy. Do, do you think that, that message is getting through to the, the general public? Because there does seem to be a, still a colossal amount of debate around whether or not uh, wind farms are, the, are genuinely going to be the answer because there are occasions when the wind doesn't blow. And then there's people who are still deeply concerned about nuclear. And then there are other concerns about... Whichever way you produce energy, people have concerns about it, but there doesn't seem to be a sort of a consistent message about this is what we're genuinely going to do. This is how we're going to answer those questions. 
Well, I think if you read the British energy security strategy, you will see in there sort of uh, what the government is seeking to do to uh, basically decarbonise our, our energy, um, uh, both both production collection and, and then its distribution. Um, and it will take, you know, different, it will take a sort of mixed economy, economy and that's actually what's being pursued through the uh, updates. For example, um, Bayes have updated their national um, uh, planning statements, which actually directly address different forms of energy um, uh, that should be coming into the system. So, I, I mean, my, you know, it, to me, it appears like it's going to be a mixed economy. It's not all eggs in one basket. It's going to be a variety of things. And you see that sort of coming through planning, whether it's solar farms, um, offshore wind, onshore wind, and et cetera. Um, and so that's that's one important thing. And that that's action obviously happening now. Um, the other thing I think that's really fascinating to look at is some of the work that's being done uh, on the back of the Environment Act, um, really important elements of the Environment Act, as Sue rightly said at the outset, are absolutely interwoven with spatial planning. Everything that we're talking about in this conversation comes down to a place. It happens somewhere, whether that's in a place that's mostly rural and a landscape, but there will be a community, there will be businesses, or things that happen in a, in a much more densely populated urban environment. On uh, environmental enhancement and including improving biodiversity, there's some uh, really good targets that uh, the government is committed to over this next decade. And just this week, two things were published. One was the Environmental Improvement Plan, which is talking about different standards of, of, of uh, achievement on all sorts of different issues. Um, but what I found really exciting was the launch by Natural England of their Green Infrastructure Framework. And in green infrastructure, it's basically everything from those highly protected landscapes uh, right though through to a public park and all waterways, so a river, a lake, and so on. And uh, it's a it's a set of information, a set of guidelines, principles, standards, how-to guides, um, and also digital mapping, which helps us all understand what we have now and what the journey is towards enhancing that through things, as Sue said, like local nature recovery strategies, which are absolutely about expanding and connecting those areas of nature recovery across the land, which absolutely has to interweave with the planning of development. So that's a very rich strand of work that's out there. And I'd really commend that to people as a fantastic portal to look at. Uh, and then the th third element is actually just how we use energy. You know, are we are we use not just the energy provided, but how we use it and whether we do that efficiently and effectively. And in that space, for example, new homes will be expected to meet a much higher standard of energy efficiency going forward through the future home standard. So there's many things going on on different strands. It all comes back to local plans, decisions about what goes where, and then who makes those decisions and how they make those decisions. So many of these things come back to local planning authorities and how they then mobilise it. Absolutely. That's completely the point. And this is the thing that I wanted to sort of bring Susan back in on is that there's a kind of constant tension, isn't there, between the need for planners to come up with these coherent strategies to meet all of the, the stuff that, that Joanna has been talking about there. And then the reality on the ground that people, they rarely like change. Whatever that change is, they rarely like it. And that planners are then caught in the middle. You've got a huge amount of pressure from developers. You've got a huge amount of pressure from government. You've got a huge amount of pressure from people who don't want to have a wind turbine built outside their village or don't want to have uh, a new residential area put somewhere. And that puts you as the planners properly piggy in the middle. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we are piggy in the middle. And 
to a certain extent, I think that um, some of the things that the government is proposing, I mean, th these new initiatives and, and the, I haven't had a chance yet to read the documents that have come out this week that Joanna's referred to, um, but I've, I find it all exciting. But how are we going to, there are strands, they need to be plaited together and they have to be plaited together through the planning system because they all impact on place. I am very interested in how the new national development management framework policies are going to deal with this aspect of it. At the moment, what we've got are local planning authorities doing their own thing. And that actually confuses the issue for suppliers, for developers, for the public, for planners, because you may have different policies in different parts of the country. You could have different policies in immediately adjoining local authority areas. For example, um, some local authorities now are using the DEFRA metric for biodiversity net gain, which, which has been published by um, the Department for the Environment and everybody is supposed to use them. But there are still local planning authorities who are using their own version of that. So we, I think the development management, the national development management framework is going to be the way of looking at all of these things and identifying those issues of national importance that we need to deal with across the board and on a consistent basis so that we've got a proper foundation on which we can then build our locally distinctive matters based on that platform. And I don't know, we haven't seen the... Um, the consultation on, on the management framework yet. So um, that's something I'm really looking forward to, to see how that comes out, because that, I think, is one of the, the ways that we can start platting all these different things together. Because this is the thing, Joanna, isn't it, that if you have a disconnect between what's being said at a national level and what actually happens at a local level, then it's very difficult to make any of these plans come to fruition. Yeah, so a couple of things. Thanks, Sue. A really, really good set of observations there. What, what I think um, colleagues on the call will be aware of is we've we've consulted on MPPF, uh, the MPPF prospectus, and the closing date is sort of coming up uh, in in the weeks ahead. Uh, and in that, actually, there are some really quite important, quite open questions about how to do, for example, deal with um, carbon impact of development and things like that. But the reason I mention it is because then the timing for preparing national development management policies and the update to the MPPF post the bill becoming an act will be well into, you know, well into um, uh, this calendar year. And um, that will, I think that it's worth distinguishing between those things that will be statements of national policy and national development management policies and what we will put in, in there as national management policies. And then alongside those, to Sue's point, what will be forms of measurement or metrics or evidence that local authorities can use to prove compliance with those policies. So biodiversity net gain is, is, a, is a good example. Um, uh, people are gearing up for, for when it becomes fully mandatory um, and sort of finding their way through that, that sort of process at the moment. Um, design coding is another um, aspect of where there's a national 
model design code. It's being tested at the moment with local authorities in part in 25 pilots. Um, and then once the bill becomes an act it, and, and at the right point for rollout, um, uh, it will be expected that every local authority will have a, an area-wide design code. So you get the distinction between national development management policies, which are those things that should be universally applied. Uh, uh, there'll be different forms of evidence base that will be required to support a local plan, the things that should be in the local plan, bearing in mind you've got national development management policies and those shouldn't be repeated and we're trying to streamline those documents. And then you have supplementary plans with, with including things like design codes that will give another tier of detail and specificity to the local context. So those things have got to work in concert um, uh, and you know over the coming months we'll be working through what all of those things look like and how they do work in concert across those different uh, tiers of policy but then how they work at the spatial scale particularly mm. with the local plan being right at the center of it this is a plan-led system and we're putting more weight on the local plan supplementary plans and um, uh, and then national development management policies in support to basically help local plans really focus on the local. So, so as, as president of the, the RTPI, you're talking to planners who are actually doing the job on day in, day out. They know that they've got a colossal body of work to, to, to get through over the course of the next 25 years to bring all of these different strands together. We're going to have a, a, a radical change in what Britain looks and feels like in the urban area over, over the next few decades. I know Red Row have recently announced that all their new builds will now have heat pumps, for instance. There's going to be a colossal amount of retrofitting going on in buildings. There's going to be all sorts of things. But planners, your members, are going to then have to actually deal with the consequences on the ground of people who maybe like their gas-fired central heating system and, and <laughs> don't want to swap over to a new one and are going to have an argument about it. Do you think that there's enough support for your members at the moment to actually make this transition possible? There's a long answer and the short answer. Let's have the short one first. <laughs> no, there are not enough resources. The long answer is that we. this is why it's so important that we get all these strands platted together. Because while they're, they're, they're not, it's difficult to see the big picture. But what we desperately need are more resources in planners. For planners, planning authorities, planning services, and within that, we need to be looking very carefully at training, because these are these are new big things that we've, you know, I mean, I was at university a long time ago, and but climate change wasn't even a gleam in somebody's eye then, so we're we're sort of like catching up. The young ones coming through now are students. We need to make sure that our planning courses are equipping them now for the challenges of the future. But there is an awful lot of training that needs to be done. And I, I'm really interested in the potential of digital planning and how the government is really looking at that seriously. But two concerns. Are we going to get the training? Because I remember when computers were first introduced, oh, it's a long time ago, and everybody got suddenly got a computer on their desk and nobody even knew how to turn it on. So, you know, there there are issues along there, uh, along that side of things is how do we harness the power of digital technology 
new things coming in to help when we're looking very seriously within the RTPI at not only just more money into the system, but also smarter ways of working. And digital planning is one of the vehicles that will bring us those smarter ways of working. But we need the training and we need the software. We need the hardware. But more importantly than that, we need the people. So there's, a, there's an, an element of inspiration needs to happen here, isn't there? I mean, Joanna, why did you become a planner in the first place? What was the point where you suddenly thought, this is what I want to do? Of all the careers you could have picked, why be a planner? What was it that inspired you to go down your route? Uh, Realising that I was a sort of, I was interested in lots of different things. Uh, I was interested in the environment around me. I I liked that, I, I, it didn't take long to realise that I liked the kind of creativity of it, but I, uh, of planning and the fact it was real. You know, the, it wasn't a, a subject that was remote and esoteric in, which I love doing that stuff as well, but it, it was practical, it was applied and you could see it in the world around you. I mean, you know, when you when you went to go and study something, you would go to villages down the road and one of the first things they tell planning students is for going to say, when you walk around the street, start looking up. You know, um, uh, and so it's just it's just got such a as as Sue started off in this very start of this conversation, it asks us to think of lots of different things all at once and creatively problem solve for places, for people, and for communities. Um, and so, and in it's never no situation, no two situations are ever the same. Do you think that maybe sometimes that planning kind of gets bogged down in acronym soup? Uh, of, of all these different layers and bodies and, and, and forgets that sort of basic excitement about exactly what you're talking about, what inspired you in the first place. Do we need to be talking publicly more around that to get planning in a more kind of central place in people's mindset? Yeah, completely. I mean, Sue and I have see absolute, have exactly the same view on the challenges faced, particularly in local government. Um, we're very conscious of um, resource challenges and and to some extent, uh, you know, we at national government create a changed, changing set of expectations for local government. Um, and we're, our intention is to very much support that change program as we go from a bill to an act. And then we start to roll out those changes and working very much with the RTPI and other colleagues across the industry, looking at the range of issues about the, both the capacity, you know, people to do things, but also the skills of available the skills of those people to then meet today's and tomorrow's challenges. So it's a very active part of our work, working with RTPI and many others across the industry. But to your to your direct point, um, uh, planning is a real. It's a central bit of the jigsaw of local government and local communities. Um, and I often say there are. That I can't think of many areas of public life or commercial life where you don't have a strategy. If you don't have a strategy, you, you, you might be luckily and muddle your way through, but planning is about a strategy for the for your place and the change that wants to you want to sort of bring about. We are on a journey where we need those those considerations are broader. But equally, we need to be clear on what is planning's responsibility and what is others' responsibilities. Bearing in mind building regs, for example, that's a huge part of this, of the of the um, response to uh, climate adaptation, net zero and so on. And that is actually a separate regulatory system. It kind of, it, it materialises through planning, but it is actually a separate regulatory system. Um, and we need a kind of a, you know, I, I'm kind of fascinated in 
what motivates local councillors to proactively think of change in a positive sense because we all know in life change is inevitable we get older the trees grow uh, you know our families uh, you know arrive grow up and leave home we need different our houses to do for different things there are more of us our climate is changing our economy is changing standing still isn't an option so how do you how do, how do how is the conversation about the role and purpose of planning as a positive, proactive way to have a strategy for your place to the benefit of your community, your environment and your, your local economy? I just see it as just such an exciting conversation and one that we just really want people to absorb. Be part of as planners, but be part of as local politicians, as communities. Sue, I mean, I think you're, you're singing from exactly this hymn sheet, aren't you? Yes, I am. And, and just to... to um... So if you elaborate slightly uh, and give an example from what Joanna said, I think neighbourhood planning has been a big missed opportunity in, in that um, education of, of ordinary people into what planners do, how we do it, why we do it, and what the benefits are of the planning system and how they can bring direct benefits to communities. Too often neighbourhood planning, neighbourhood plans are seen as vehicles to uh, prevent development or minimise development, do the absolute minimum necessary to satisfy the regulations. But in fact, what we should be doing is having much broader conversations with neighbourhoods about what the benefits are. So, for example, for some villages, actually having considerable amount of development in them which might feel very very uncomfortable you could put put it the other way around and say what are the benefits of these this amount of development because your neighborhood shop is on its knees the pub's closed so the school has got lots of empty places in it and in fact some in some villages um, near where I live there are no primary schools, local schools in the villages. In the primary school, children are being bused to village other, to to primary schools in other villages. That for seven and eight year olds, that's not really very satisfactory. But if only you had a little bit more development, more money coming in to those communities, you could revitalise them. And that is the type of conversation that we should be having when we're doing neighbourhood plans. And to connect that to that point about digitisation, so the investments we're doing in digital planning are, are really exciting and thanks to many of the local authorities that are working with on, on this and the, the power of, we've got 45 pilots with local authorities working with digital innovators who are connecting up exactly these sorts of conversations, reaching out to a broader uh, set of community voices to sort of ask about change and what they value now and what that change could look like. And and it's is it's really powerful. There are different ways for us to do things and to Sue's point, sort of in a, using digital to do things in a smarter way and a more engaging way. Um, and uh, so those conversations are, are really important. And just to note, I mean, the RTPI are doing fantastic work on apprentices, apprenticeships and 
uh, you know, uh, bursaries that we fund and various other things. I mean, this kind of conversation about, I think, Rob, to what, what you're getting to, which is how you mobilise more people coming into planning and feeling, feeling it's like it's the profession for them uh, and being excited about it. But also recognising we do, it's a, it's a multidisciplinary response. We need more ecologists. You know, local government may well need more lawyers because at, at, at any given point, it's always, as we all know, and many people listening to this, they live that live and breathe this. There's always the point where you have to make a decision. Does something happen or does it not? And that point of regulation, that point of decision is is often a point of tension and where people get heated. Um, but actually, it, it, that's when planning is is it is most powerful because it is there you know the planning professions advising um, um politicians is there to, to to help weigh up those decisions and make make a uh, make a good decision so as we start sort of bringing the conversation to, towards a close I, I want to ask each of you what is like the single idea that you want other people the people who are listening to this to take away with them like the the key idea from our conversation as we go forward. So um, I'll, I'll go. I'll turn to you first, Sue. What's the, the the main, the most important thing that people need to be bearing in mind as we go forward with this climate change journey? This is a journey that everybody has to go on. Absolutely everybody, not just in this country, but in the world. The whole globe has got to go on this journey. And we've got to find ways, smart ways of of doing things. Um, I'd like a, a, a offline have an opportunity to talk to Joanna about some of these things that that we can. But my takeaway is that within your within the national context and within the local context, we need to be looking at stitching all of these things together so that we have a holistic and integrated approach. And that's my takeaway, not only to the policy side of things, but also to funding and delivery, because these things will not come cheap. OK, so, Joanna, you are the chief planner for, for England. Most of the people listening to this podcast will be directly involved with the planning world one way or another. You've got the opportunity to talk directly to them. What is the key thing they need to be thinking about? Understand the layers of the place that you're planning for or the layers of a decision you're making. Landscape, topography, economy, built form. And give yourself time to stand back and think about how those layers interact and what you actually want to happen in terms of change. And see that, allow yourself to be creative in thinking that through. And then always think temporarily, what's it mean over time? Um, and um, enjoy that, you know, enjoy that. Uh, we recognise that the processes themselves can be quite torturous and quite sticky, um, uh, um, but try and keep an eye on that, that sort of outcome. And that's where you can see climate adaptation, journey to net zero, environmental enhancement, can, you can sort of keep an eye on those outcomes. And uh, use digital. We've put some resources out there um, uh, which can help you understand those sorts of layers that you are dealing with. Um, and finally, um, I study town and country planning. I have a degree in town and country planning. Uh, and I think it's a fascinating time to be thinking about whether it's energy infrastructure, whether it's uh, our green and blue infrastructure, uh, local nature recovery and other things where we connect 
are urban, our peri-urban and our rural, and we are both, we are thinking about the town and the country, uh, at countryside rather, um, and we're bringing the countryside into the town. Um, I just think it's a fascinating thing because it goes to people's health and well-being, it goes to climate change, it goes to urban resilience in terms of heat, all sorts of different agendas. It's really exciting. So it's a very final thought, and I ask everybody this. Are you, are you optimistic or pessimistic that we're going to be able to do this? I'm optimistic, but it will take a lot of effort and it will take very clear plans of action that turn into delivery. And that's why you need planners. And Susan? I'm very optimistic about this because there is, I can see in the consultation document that is out at the moment that, that there is a shift in the mood and that just needs to come with a bit bit of backbone actually but also we mustn't forget that the best way of delivering is for the public sector and the private sector to work together for common objectives and that is something else that I'm feeling um, more confident and, and um, more optimistic about. Great stuff. Um, it's been brilliant having a conversation with both of you. Thank you both ever so much for your time. Sue Bridge, President of the RTPI, and Joanna Averley, uh, Chief Planner for England. Um, if you've missed any of the other podcasts in this series, you can, of course, catch up by searching online for RTPI Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, where you'll also find a whole bunch of other useful materials, including filmed documentary and a range of videos that you can use to inform and inspire your colleagues and the next generation of planners. Crucially, that's what we've been talking about, because we want to create a world for our children and grandchildren that is healthy and socially inclusive and environmentally sustainable and even beautiful. That's something worth planning for, isn't it? I'd say so. Thanks for listening. I'm Rob Smith, and this has been a Content With Purpose production. Thanks once again to the sponsors of this episode, Ramble and the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. You can read, watch and learn more about their work and about the full Planning for Tomorrow's Environment digital series by going to planningfortomorrow.rtpi.org.uk. And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on social to check out more of our podcast collaborations.